Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Nate Marshall, who is the author of Fina, um, his latest poetry collection. So, Nate, thanks for being here. Hey, how are you? Good, good, good. So you have this new collection that's coming out. It's not out yet, right? It's coming out in... Yeah, it's coming out, um, what, like the first or second week of August. Perfect. So it might be out coinciding with the release of this podcast. So can you talk a little bit about how you put this collection together? What inspired you to write this collection? Yeah. Um, you know, so so this collection in a lot of ways comes out of the first collection. So my, my first collection of poems, um, Wild Hundreds, was this sort of like you know, kind of a coming of age thing, like a lot of first books I think are. And like, um, and certainly like, you know, and, and also just thinking about this, it was sort of an ode to my neighborhood and ode to like the part of Chicago that I grew up in, um, on the sort of far South side of Chicago. And, um, you know, I, I started to like go around the country with that book and, and beyond. And one of the things that really struck me about it was the way that how can I say this? Um, the way that so many people, when they either heard the poems or read the poems, um, just when they interacted with the work, they were sort of prepared to read it as um, prepared to sort of read it as tragic, right? Read it as a kind of tragedy. And that, I you know, kind of made me uncomfortable, but I think it was also really interesting for me. And I think that for me, like a lot of uh, what became Fennel was kind of thinking through, okay, well, why is this happening, right? Like, why is it that people are sort of prepared to read these poems as tragic? And what does that say about like what they're reading on to me as the author? And I think often assume the speaker of the poems and, um, yeah. And just, and, and what is that? So, so that, that was kind of, I guess the initial thought process, but beyond that, I think I became really interested in, cause, cause I, I think what I sort of came to was like, Oh, I think part of this is that people want to read this story in this way because um, it's a sort of, it's a story of urban black life. And I think that much of the sort of American and global imagination for that matter of urban, you know, black American life is one of tragedy is one of, um, blight, et cetera. Right. Whether, whatever your sort of political orientation to that is, whether you're like, Oh, that's a shame or your, or your position is, Oh, well that's because they are gang members and they do drugs and sell drugs and whatever. Right. Um, I think that we're really prepared as a society to like, read that on to black folks and black bodies and black stories. And so for me, I, I just was like, okay, cool. Well, like how, as a sort of follow-up to that project, do I just sidestep that entirely and try to think about what it looks like to have a more full conversation um, via the poems with with black folks, right. With those folks who would be subject to that sort of tragic reading of their lives and circumstances and art. So, So, yeah. And it's a, this, it's very timely coming up now and we can, I wanted to get into that, but first I sort of want to 
talk a bit about Chicago, right? And the real role that Chicago plays. I I mean, I live in downstate Illinois. I teach at a state university where a majority of our students uh, come down from Chicago. I have a lot of students who live in the Englewood area of Chicago. And so Chicago's important, like Chicago as a space and as a place is so important and integral. So can you uh, can we talk a little bit about that and what it is about Chicago that has really impacted you and and what you're writing about and talking about? Yeah, um, that's a good question. You know, I mean, Chicago for me is in, is is integral, right? I I was born and raised in Chicago, uh, born in Roseland, at Roseland Community Hospital. Grew up um, my whole life on the South Side till I went off to college, and so certainly like much of my understanding and orientation of the world comes out of that place um, just personally. But I think, you know, in terms of the larger historical thrust, um, it seems to me that Chicago is such an important city in the American imagination. Um, And specifically as it relates to black Americans, right? So, um, what do I mean when I say that? Well, you know, you know, Chicago in many ways, like in many ways, it feels for me like much of the 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 shaping of America really from the the open of the 20th century up to now has been sort of framed by Chicago in some ways. Right. So like a thing people don't think about is the reason why New York has five boroughs is because of Chicago because Chicago was actually going to eclipse New York in terms of population and New York wanted to retain this uh, notion of being the biggest city. And so they just like annexed, uh, you know, the outer boroughs. Right. Um, But like, so so like we don't think about, we don't really think about that, but that, but that is true. Right. I think about Chicago as a sort of hub of, um, a kind of hub of the great migration and and of migrations for a number of people, right. Whether that's, uh, you know, folks from Mexico and Central America, whether that's folks from Poland, whether that's, um, you know, folks from all over Europe, from all over the world. Right. Um, and so I think that, that in many ways, like kind of as goes Chicago goes the country in some ways that feel replicable, like across many spaces. And I don't know if like, like it seems to me that um, New York and LA, right. Which are the two cities that people sort of often talk about Chicago sort of sitting in the shadow of, right. Because they're the big coastal cities of sort of power and prestige and importance. Um, I think the thing that separates Chicago from those places in some ways is that, you know, what, what happens in, in Chicago is perhaps like, really applicable like like in some ways new york especially new york and and i would also say that this is sort of holds true of la they're kind of singular places right they're kind of international cities they're kind of what goes on with them certainly does impact the rest of the country and often is like a harbinger like and has a lot of influence but like you know, what, what works in New York doesn't necessarily work in like Topeka, Kansas or whatever. But I think Chicago in some ways, maybe because it's, you know, the Midwest, because it's, um, you know, because of a bunch of factors feels a little more like, like closer to the kind of middle of the country in the, in the sense that in the sense of the middle being a kind of norm, not just like geographically, it's like, in between. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's this, it's very much this hidden gem, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so some of the things that you, you play as poetry, <laughs> as it is poetry, you play around with language a lot. And so one of the things I would like you to talk about is that research you've had to do to really, th- and, and that thinking about, um, the quote unquote native language, what is black yeah. English? Um, can you talk a bit about those ideas and that work? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for me that, that sort of thinking or that, that investigation really goes back a decade at least. 
um, in 2010, in the, the sort of second half of 2010, I was uh, I was an undergraduate at the time, and I studied abroad at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And uh, being in South Africa was like really a kind of mind opening, mind bending experience for me because for a bunch of reasons, right? Because it was the first time I'd left the country, so it was my first time outside of a U.S. context, and it was also my first time being in a country where you know blackness and black people were a kind of norm, right? Which I think, which I didn't think would be that big of a deal to me, to be honest, because like I grew up in Chicago in like very black neighborhoods, like, you know, the doctors I went to, many of them were black, many of my teachers were black. Like, so it wasn't like I felt like this sort of um, this kind of deprivation, but I did realize like, oh, right. It's really different when you're just like watching TV and every commercial is like full of black people. And it's not because you're like watching the black network or something. It's just because those are the commercials they have because that's what the country looks like. And so like that was, yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize how much that would sort of move me or what that would do to me just as an observer until I was sort of living in it. Um, But, you know, the other thing that one of the other things that happened there is I was, uh, I was teaching, I was um, volunteering at this charter school there. And I worked with this group of uh, sort of young boys, kind of like young like teen, preteen kind of age guys. And we were, we were sort of doing like quote unquote creative writing workshops, but really what they ended up being much more was just like, we'd sit in a room like once or twice a week and have a sort of cultural exchange and talk a bunch and occasionally write. Um, And they had all these questions about Chicago, about black folks in America, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And, you know, and I also had questions for them. And so it was just really rich, place of conversation. But I, one of the questions that really struck me was like, what is your, uh, like, what is your mother tongue or like, what is your native language? And part of that was because for them, as I understand it, right. Their sort of understanding of language is like, yeah, everyone sort of speaks English because English is like the kind of lingua franca. It's like the language you need to know to like navigate these sort of larger systems, right. To get a job, to go to school, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But um, but you have like your language that like, you know, you talk with your family and all this sort of stuff. Right. And, and I remember like when getting that question, like I felt a lot of shame because I was like, uh, just this one, just English. Right. Um, which certainly I think is like not an uncommon experience for black Americans, particularly when like sort of interfacing with like Africans of other extraction. Right. Um, and from like the continent, but, um, but at the same time as I was doing that, um, I was doing this kind of self-study where every day I didn't have class, I'd go to the library and they had this, this, uh, thick, um, they had like the thick version that I think is out of print. It's like sort of hard to find. And when you find it, it costs a bunch of money of, um, James Baldwin's collected essays. And I was reading those essays, that whole, those whole like six months I was in South Africa. And so, you know, it's another point during that trip, I came across, you know, Baldwin's essay, like if black English isn't a language and tell me what is. And it was, it was sort of this like aha moment because I realized like, oh, this is like, like these two things are connected, right? This kid asking this question and Baldwin sort of, you know, across time and space and, and everything else, like answering it. And so, you know, for, I think past that, I just, it was a thing that I became interested in that I became, and that I sort of was always like tracking and, and studying in a, in a, in a number of ways. Right. And I also just think being a poet and being like someone really deeply into hip hop and engaged in that culture. um, So much of my life has been driven by a sort of fascination with language and the way language like shakes and moves and shifts and, and, you know, is making itself new constantly. So, so yeah, let's talk a bit about hip hop, right. And that role that hip hop plays. I have to tell you as a native from Minnesota and a, a deep love of Prince, um, your poem yeah. about purple rain in the ride. <laughs> it made me very happy. Um, but you, you talk about sort of like some of these experiences um, as a younger soul too with hip hop. So can you talk a bit about that role of hip hop in your um, life? Yeah. I mean, 
you know, I, you know, I grew like where I grew up, like that was sort of just the music that kids listen to. Right. And so that was, it was this thing that was always around, but I did have this, like, you know, hip hop, I think exists in a kind of strange cultural space in like black American uh, communities. Right. Because often it's this, and maybe this is changing now. Right. But like, you know, my grandma grew up in like the Jim Crow South in Montgomery, Alabama. Right. Um, And we were sort of like raised with her. And so, you know, hip hop wasn't a thing you could always listen to in the house. Right. Sometimes it was sort of off limits and sometimes it would kind of come back in and be okay and be cool. But that was, you know, that that was it was a content. It was a contested space. Right. And so I understood that about the music and and that probably was part of the thing. Like a lot of kids that attracted me to it was that it did have this sort of like mark of edginess or mark of sort of the outlaw or whatever. Um, but for me, like what really opened me up was when I was in middle school starting to hear, um, to really like pay attention to the music and see like just how creative and how inventive it was at the level of language um that got me really excited and it was one of the first things that made me want to be a writer and then i think i also recognized like when i listen when i really listened to the song like how much stuff songs were often alluding to like they'd be riffing on oh here's this uh here's like a sort of childhood nursery rhyme and here is a reference to something in the news and here's a reference to my favorite athlete or sports team and, 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 and here's a reference to this book and this movie and whatever. And it came to this point where I think like by the time I was like 13 or 14, I was sort of convinced that rappers were like the smartest people I knew um, that I had ever seen. And part of it was because they had this real ability to like pull from culture at all levels and sort of synthesize it into something. And I think I just became really interested in wanting to do that in whatever I was doing. Right. So, you know, so trying to write rhymes and then also, you know, starting to write poetry, but also, you know, when I approached my schoolwork, when I approached, you know, talking to friends, whatever, like this sort of notion of I can pull from anywhere, like all of the knowledge that I have is valid and can be deployed to this, um, to this investigation, this conversation, was a thing that just really appealed to me as a young person. Um, yeah. Yeah. Are you it, in my mom's favorite rapper was too short. You sort yeah. of get at, <laughs> get at some of that in, in, in some of the ways in which um, I love uh, when you say my mama told me about the white house and selling cocaine, Nancy yeah. Reagan's business, right? Like it's yeah. like that kind of imagery and that relationship between the music and what's going on. And yeah. Yeah. So you, <laughs> another thing you talk about is, um, and you mentioned her that someone who's really important to this collection and to your work is your grandma. Yeah. And, and so can you talk a bit about her and sort of her role in your writing, but sort of this work that you've been doing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, to that point, right. My grandmother was, uh, you know, she came up uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, um, ended up migrating to Chicago, sort of following a sister of hers. Um, my, my folks, I should say like initially when we, when that part of my family migrated North, they went to Detroit. And so like my grandmother actually, which I didn't really realize until I think she passed, but she went to high school in Detroit. So I think because like schools only went up to a certain level for, for black folks in, in Alabama or whatever. Um, so they sent her up North for high school. Um, Cause she had like older siblings. My grandma was the youngest of 12. So she has like siblings that were old enough to be her parents. So they sent her up with some siblings. She went to high school and they sent her back South um, to go to historically black college, Alabama state university. And um, you know, and then she, she sort of went that, you know, it's, it's just like, there's, you know, there's the thing about migration is like, it's not a one way thing. Right. Um, but certainly right. Like, you know, my life looks really different if she doesn't ultimately end up in Chicago and marrying my grandfather 
and having my mom and then ultimately divorcing my grandfather, whatever. But the other thing for me about my grandma was like, she was a librarian. And so she was one of the first people. I mean, one, like she was a librarian in public high schools and I think had a really deep notion of the value of education and the belief that education was a kind of public good that should be supported by, by all of us, right. By the public that I think really, uh, like shaped how I think about those things, but also like, you know, because she was a librarian, she really like encouraged all of us, um, towards a high level of literacy. And one of the things that she always said that I think really impacted me was she would let me read whatever I wanted. Like just the fact that I wanted to read was like enough. And so like, if I wanted subscriptions to, you know, magazines about video games, or I wanted a subscription to some hip hop magazine, or I wanted to read, um, you know, like iceberg slim Donald Goins sort of like smutty pimp novels. Um, she was like, cool. As long as you're reading, like, I don't care. Like I will, I will like make it possible for you to engage in, in the work of literacy, because I believe literacy to be a sort of transformative space. Right. Um, and, and I think that like really, impacted before I knew I was a writer, right? Like I first fell in love with language in part because of the way my grandma sat with language and taught mm-hmm. me to sit with language. And because of that, right. And and so one of the most, for me as a white woman, right. One of the most power, most powerful parts of this is that work you did and sort of research you did on learning about another Nate Marshall. Right. So can you talk a bit about racism and in particular white supremacy and the role that white supremacy has in in this tax in your collection and and what you did with that? Yeah, Um, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think like. Part of the. The sort of sticky wicket of being a black person in this society, I mean, really, I think being a person in this society is that we all are sort of living under the, the effects historically and present day of white supremacy. And I think part of the thing about being a black person is that we have to contend with it in a different way, right? Like there's not necessarily a way that we can that we can really like displace these things entirely from our like active thought processes. Right. So even when you see sort of like these like black conservative voices or whatever, um, who, who are, who sort of want to be dismissive of white supremacy and sort of white racism as, um, as still a prime mover in the society, like it's a thing that they have to contend with, right? Like they don't get to ignore it in the way that, for example, like many of their white counterparts could simply just ignore it, could simply like not talk about it and no one would expect them to talk about it and it would be like fine. Um, yeah, you know, I think like hmm, in some ways like race is is a thing that I'm always like thinking about and kind of parsing about and just like fascinated by and sort of studying. Um And so it comes through in the work in that way. But I think also for me, part of the thing is, you know, I I understand like race and racism to be one of many kind of systems of oppression that are functioning actively in our society. And so um, and in some ways, like that is a system that I have a lot of access in terms of uh, investigating and critiquing because, because I'm a black person. Right. Um, but there are other systems that I think are harder for me to investigate and critique because I feel implicated in a different way, not just as like a survivor or a victim of that system, but also as a sort of perpetrator. Right. Um, so I think about like, um, sexism, I think about, um, sort of heterosexism, uh, capitalism, et cetera. And so for me, um, like racism is useful because I mean, one, I just think it's like pretty central to, I don't know how you tell the story of the United States without like telling the story of racism. 
um, and people sort of contending with that and, you know, wanting to, you know, the sort of push and pull of that. But I think it's also like a helpful, like in some ways the, the sort of other Nate Marshall, right. Who's this figure who, who sort of reappears in the book. Who's there's a guy who lives in Colorado, which is funny because it's where I live now, who is um, like a white sort of what he would, he would term like a, a white cultural nationalist or a cultural nationalist or something like that. Um, but who who is this sort of white supremacist who's also named Nate Marshall. And I think one of the reasons why he's a useful figure in the book, right. Um, as this kind of recurrent character is because he's a good way for me to think about a system of power that I find abhorrent and then to think about, okay, what other systems do I, where, what are the systems that exist where I am the him? Right. Um, But I don't know if I can, if I get there without, without first having that connective tissue of like, look, this is a person who does not believe in my personhood or is interested in denying certain parts of my, personhood or possibility. And I believe that harms me. And so, and so hopefully from that space, I can then be like self-critical and think about where am I doing that kind of foreclosing a possibility on other folks. And the, the, your first poem in the book, the last stanza sort of gets at that and sort of introduces us to that for the rest of the book. Um, you, I'll, you read it better than I would, but um, once you left Twitter and I told my people to tell you that they loved you and your book and your commitment to black people. And I feel you, Nate Marshall. I've left places and loves when they told me they loved a Nate Marshall I didn't recognize. Right. So you give this sort of um, you set us up too with this idea of using your writing and using your work as sort of activism and using your work as this sort of tool to for political action. Um, so. Can you talk a bit about that, how you see that sort of playing out in this collection and in your work? Huh. Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I think like, I guess I'm of the school of thought that I believe that like, I just think art is political, like, or at the very least, like art has political consequences. Um, And so, for example, like I was listening to, one of the new books podcasts about um, where the dude was talking about sort of like uh, racism and the movies, right. Um, or how like movies um, and film kind of advanced these notions of like colorblindness that, that made them sort of make way or ready the ground for a lot of, uh, a lot of like anti-blackness, a lot of white racism, whatever. And I don't think that's like a mistake, right? I, I think like one, I think there are people who are, who are part of those projects who do understand, have some sense of like the political import of that, of what it means to like position Rocky as the sort of classic American hero, uh, though his like, you know, sort of, you know, gnome de title is like, a, is uh what the Italian stallion, not the American stallion, but he's, but he's the one who sort of uh, is this kind of like hardworking, aggrieved, uh, displaced, like white working class figure that sits in opposition to the seemingly wealthy, seemingly sort of entitled flashy Apollo creed. Um, So, you know, I think like always our art is like speaking to, to these various political projects. And so for me, like just what that means is that like, I am aware of that and I try to be explicit about the projects that I like am speaking to or not. Right. Because, because ultimately I just think all of, all of, uh, all of us who are making art are doing that. Right. So if you, if you make the decision to like, um, you know, to write a book of poems that's just about how much you love flowers and dogs in the summer when like George Floyd has been murdered. Like you're ma- you've made a decision, like you're making a decision and to say that you're, you're not making a decision or that you're making a decision that is somehow absent or discreet from that. Like I actually don't buy. And so for me, I'm just like, I, you know, I want to hopefully write poems that are in service to like a vision of the world that, feels more in line with like the ability for all people to live 
like with some measure of justice. Um, cause like for me that that's part of the work of the artist is to like imagine the next world. Right. And so it's like, do we keep imagine, you know, do we do the thing of like a lot of movies where that are sort of filled with this like police propaganda where the cops are like the cool edgy antiheroes? Um, or do we imagine something different? Do we like, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. we get, we just got to imagine something different. Right. And so you structure your uh, collection into f- it's four different sort of sections, right? Yeah. Make sure I get it right. Yep. Uh, can you, Yeah. Right. You start with sort of this idea of the other Nate Marshall and my favorite word. Can you talk a bit about that sort of h- how you structured your collection a bit and why this sort of concept, this order yeah yeah um so i really love structure um and and in terms of like the sort of sequencing of a book like for me that is the i mean i like writing the poems and the individual poems and like tinkering with those but for me part of the thing that really justifies the the project as a book is that that work of how you know, all of the things put together make a sort of meta poem. And so that's kind of what I'm always thinking about. But um, I guess as it relates to that, like, um, it went, th- I mean, we went through a bunch of different iterations and a bunch of different versions. Um, what we sort of landed on was, was this structure that I hope like, you know, moves people through these particular, but you know, but kind of distinct ways of thinking or ways of considering this stuff. Right. So was it the first section is um, the other Nate Marshall. And then we get uh, what's my favorite word. And then I think it's um, na- uh, native informant. Is it native informant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then Finna. Right. And, you know, so for me, like part of that is like, you know, the other Nate Marshall is like, is this sort of like staring down of one of like this kind of white supremacist figure and then moving to like, what's my favorite word? What's my favorite word is like an allusion to, uh, to too short, the rapper from Oakland who like, it's like kind of a catchphrase he has and his favorite word is uh, the B word said in a very particular way. And so that is sort of moving from staring down this sort of system of oppression that I am that I'm victim of or survivor of to transitioning into thinking about, well, okay, let's think about a system of oppression that like in which I've done far more victimizing than, uh, than, than been made a victim. Right. Um, and then like native informant sort of thinking about like, well, what are the stakes of having these sorts of conversations in public? Right. So like, you know, the idea of like a native informant being that there's someone who's sort of on the inside of a a thing, a system, a community that can give you sort of knowledge that you otherwise wouldn't be able to to excavate yourself. Right. Or even or maybe you'd be able to look at it, but you wouldn't even be able to to decipher it in that way. Um, And then for me, like that, that final section, Finna, is is all about kind of possibility. Right. Because I think to that, like by that point, it's been, you know, I, I really wanted to write this book that felt hopeful, right. That pushed against this reading of, I think black people and black communities and black art as these sort of um, dramas of tragedy. And so like for, you know, for me, I, I think the hope of that last section is, is to arrive at a sort of place of hopefulness and a place of hopefulness that isn't kind of, um, Pollyanna ish or that isn't sort of blind, just like, Oh, well, I, I hope things will get better in the way that like, you know, people in in the government are like, well, you know, this coronavirus thing will just disappear one day. Like, it's not that it's like, no, 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 no. It's like the way, the way through it is through it. But like, I have a belief that we will, that we, that we have the power, that we have the strength, that we have the fortitude to like navigate through that thing. And so for me, I, I guess like that is the, 
that's the idea of like how I try to sort of move through the sections. Mm-hmm. So do you have any poems that you particularly feel, I don't know if I want to say proud of is not the word I want. I'm trying to think of how to word this, but that you, that you find are really important right now, maybe, or that are really speaking to what you're seeing going on now or your work right now. Ah, uh, that's, yeah, that's a good question. Um, hmm. you know, I think, I mean, one of the poems I guess I always come back to in the book is, uh, at least right now is landless acknowledgement, uh, which is the sort of like first, first poem. Like it sits outside of the sort of, uh, structure of sections. It's like before the first section. Um, and I think one of the, the reason why I think about that book is, or think about that poem a lot is because it does feel like it's like wrestle. There's like, um, how can I say this? I, like, I think a lot of, a, a pretty understandable disconnect between a lot, for a lot of people, um, when we're talking about sort of race and power, particularly in the U.S. context, is people are always like, wait, well, why, like, um, why are we always talking about black people, right? We have a very sort of black and white way of talking about race and power in this country. Um, but the thing that I notice in that is that people are always uncomfortable or when they talk about displacing or decentering something in that, they always are talking about like the blackness, right? Um, they're never like, why are we talking about white people? Right. Because it's clear why we're talking about white people because, you know, what 44, the 45 presidents have been white, you know, all of the most things have been white because like whiteness holds a sort of power, Mm -hmm. um, in this, in this thing. Right. And so I guess like the reason why I'm sort of taken with that poem or with what it's sort of doing is I, I think it, it does try to think about, okay, well, what is, what are, what are some of the like particulars of the sort of black American experience, at least as I understand it? Um, and why does that, and how can I, in some way, if not like just explain that to people, at least like hand them something that might capture a little bit of an emotional snapshot of what the particularities of that are, right? Like what it means to like, to not know sort of where your family, right? Where your sort of lineage is descended from in a, in a sort of specific way. And not because someone like, moved and was like, I just want to set aside my old life and make a new life. And now I'm an American, but because like, it was not allowed for people to like have that knowledge, right. It was not allowed for that knowledge to get sort of like carried over. And it often wasn't even allowed for people to like have their families intact in any way that would be discernible to us sitting in 2020. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a poem that I think sits with me a lot. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, I guess a lot of the poems, which, yeah, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a good thing, or that's a bad thing, but yeah. So I have two to ask you about. Um, first is because I thought this poem was funny, but then everybody got sad. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about that poem? Because you get to the end, and it is really timely, right? When I think of George Floyd, what happened with George. I, you know, most recently with George Floyd, but just America in general. Uh, can you talk a bit about that poem and the writing and the structure of that poem as well? Like the physical yeah. page structure? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Um, so, you know, I think, so for me, it's a bunch of things, right? Like, I mean, one, like that poem is sort of structured like, like a series of jokes, right? Which like for me, I, I love I love jokes. I love like stand up. I love humor. Um, like I have this book that sits next to my desk. It's the um it's the book of Negro humor by it's collected by Langston Hughes and it's all these jokes like dating back to slave to like slave times, um, up to what it would have been his contemporary moment. 
um, some longer, some sort of shorter, but like, you know, so I, I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about like, um, and so th- like, I think the history of sort of black humor and how particularly in the American context, humor is, I mean, one, like much of our, uh, comic tradition just comes out of vaudeville, which is to say comes out of like the tradition of blackface. Right. Mm-hmm. But also like the way that humor has always been this sort of really powerful way um for people on the margins to subvert power right um like it's the gesture who who gets to make fun of the king right and so i'm interested in that um and and i think that sort of comes through in the poem but then also like the last few lines right um what has a black body and is red all over i mean is red all over i mean that's the punchline i think is is again thinking through this, the, what are the the limited ways that we have to imagine black people in this country? And I think, uh, you know, part of the ways that we have to imagine black people in this country are either as sort of victims of a, like violence, a kind of ritualized violence, What, however we feel about that, right? Whether we're the sort of, white abolitionists saying, look at this, this is terrible. Like we have to do better or we're the people, um, you know, sitting in the photo, like taking the early photograph of like, you know, like having a picnic, like with a lynch body hanging behind us. Right. Regardless, like regardless of where we sit in that sort of space. Right. The reality is that like, we all have live in a country where we have been sort of conditioned to think of violence against black people as a sort of normal. And I want to like, I guess for me, like the joke structure of that is a way to, to represent that and hopefully to like trouble that a little bit. Right. Um, Or at least like put like lay, lay that out in front of us and say like, wait, what does it mean that we're comfortable with these images yeah, I have to say, I appreciate, like, I'm going to ask you about three, because when when you read America Writes, like it was when you were talking, it reminded me, I mean, that poem is really short, right? It talks about, yeah. right? But it, it reminds me, I teach English education. So I work with pre-service teachers who are going to go into high school primarily. And I am pushing all the time because we like to teach dead people all the time. I'm like, you know how many wonderful like black authors, Latinx authors, native authors there are who are alive right now and they're writing and they're doing. And it's like, but we have to return to like the dead people because they're safe, right? We don't want to read the contemporaries because they're not as safe. So it made me think of like even that when you're talking now, that notion of um, if we think about it in the in only in the past, right? Then it's much safer to talk and write about that than to really challenge and look at what we're doing right now. Yeah. I mean, think about, think about this, right? Like uh, we just lost John Lewis, right? Congressman John Lewis. And how many people who, I'm trying, I'm trying not to curse. How many people hated this dude, found him despicable, entirely unhelpful, politically marginal, whatever, who like, you know, posted their picture of with him on Twitter and was like, oh, such a big loss whatever, whatever. Oh, he's the conscious of the Congress. And my sort of contention with that is like, okay, he's the conscious of the Congress. So, so what you're telling me then is like the Congress is an evil place. It's a, it's a sinister place because this man was not really listened to for decades. Right. Um, you know, like so many issues, the side that, that he sort of fell on was, was politically marginal. And I don't, and I think like this is often the work that we as a society ask black people to do, particularly. And I think in some ways it becomes even more nefarious uh, once those people pass away, right? Like how many people hated Martin Luther King? Mm-hmm. Um, that like now, you know, on that third, whatever in January, like really reliably are like, you know, we judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. That's why I support, uh, you know, 
defunding Negro schools or whatever. Like, I mean, that that basically is like is sort of where we're at in the kind of political discourse. And I and that always has like that has always sort of made me crazy because, you know, I'm from a a community, I'm from a people like I'm not saying you gotta like speak ill of the dead, but like say it with your chest. If you didn't like that man, he dead. You don't have to don't like him now. Like seriously. And mm-hmm. it's like, why is why is the president like saying anything about John Lewis's death? He should just mum should be the word. Cause like you didn't like that dude. And like, but but you know, but I think about like there is a kind of inappropriate work that we often ask our sort of like uh like, you know, deceased saints to do. Um and I'm Pro, I'm like fairly uncomfortable with that, with with like the way that that often happens in the society. Because also, often it happens in ways where we get to sort of cherry pick, and we don't get to like, we get to to look away from what people were really thinking about and what their sort of the sort of full measure of their lives and intellectual and political work is. Um, but also, I think it's like a really great way to like make young people feel alienated from from history, right, and from their their sort of culture and 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 all these things, right? Like I've often thought, like in the case of you know literary history, just U.S. history more broadly, civics, all these kinds of things, that we should study them from like we should start now and work our way back. Like, and why that isn't like the the primary way of like teaching these things to me, I can only presume like is because we want to to try to ensure that young people don't make connections right. to, to like their, their c- contemporary current world. Right. Oh uh, yes. A thousand percent agree with that. So I want to, um, we've been talking for a bit so we can end on <laughs> and a different note, because I have to tell you that um, Harold's chicken shack number two yeah. <laughs> is, a, yeah. is a, a bit different and much fun. And it just made me, um, miss my students and especially when I work with students who've just come down um, to this small Midwest town in Illinois from Chicago and not really, you know, which is light years away, even though it's like a train, like a three hour train ride. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and telling me about where I should eat and where we, we don't have food in Chicago, you know, all these things like it just, can you talk a little bit about that poem um, and what you got going on there? Yeah. I, I mean, well, first off, I guess just like the last book, you know, I have these, I always have like little through lines for myself, if no one else, but the last book had three or four Harold's chicken shack poems. Um, and so, and there were some that didn't make in that book and whatever, but I'm kind of like, now I'm just interested to see how many books in can I get <laughs> where I like have a Harold's chicken shack poem before they either cease to be a useful exercise for me or someone is just like, this is, this is just silly. Um, so it's like a little bit of a personal challenge to me, but you know, the thing for me that is interesting about that poem is like, it is, you know, I think it is this, how can I say? Um, yeah. I mean, it's a poem that speaks to a lot of the things that I'm often thinking about. Right. So about how people on the inside of a community have a certain bit of knowledge, a certain bit of insight that would escape, that would escape other folks. Right. So the idea like, Oh no, this is the best heralds. No, nah, this is the best heralds. Not nah, well, this is the best one, but you got to go there from this day to this day. Cause otherwise they change out the grease and it's kind of trash. Like you need the dirty grease. That's actually what makes it better. Like, mm-hmm. but just that the kind of like, this I love like those little specifics of like language and knowledge. And I'm like, I remain fascinated by that. And also fascinated by how that is a kind of like a, a site of a certain kind of hopefulness. Right. So for example, like, you know, like you, you go to Chicago and you ask your students like, yo, what, which Harold should I go to? And they're all going to have different answers. And let's say you go to one and you're like, oh, this wasn't it. Then, uh, you know, they're going to be, they're going to have some reasoning. They're going to be like, oh, you went on the wrong day or 
you ordered the wrong thing or whatever, right? Whatever the case may be. And I'm just like, and I love that. I'm like, I think that that's like so cool in such a way that like all people are always like reaching towards a sort of hopefulness, even if stuff doesn't exactly work out in the way that you initially intended. Now, it may, I um, taught high school in Philadelphia for a long time, and yeah. it, and Philadelphia is very much like neighborhoods, even if the neighbor, you know, it's like if you go into Kensington from Fishtown or wherever from, you know, you have everything changes. And so this also made me think of my high school kids in Philly telling me which neighborhood I have to go, you know, you have to go here, but you ha- can't go to this one in the neighborhood. You can go to this one, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, yes, it was very, um, I loved it. Um, so we've been talking for a bit. Are there? I know this book is just coming out, but I don't know if there's anything you're working on. I usually, my last question is usually if there's anything you're working on or anything you're doing that you want to sort of advertise or hype up. So is there any last things that you want to? Yeah. What am I, I mean, what am I working on now? Um, I, I've been kind of kicking around like a, some fiction stuff. Um, which I feel it feels like sort of way too early to to talk or think about, but um, but yeah, but that's been sort of an exciting place to to live, kind of coming down from the poetry book. Um, I also think like I'm trying to think what else have I been working on. I'm also I'm working on um, like a few projects with this uh, this organization called Make Believe Association that's a Chicago thing. And they, we sort of do, um, we like build, um, audio dramas, right. Mm-hmm. So think kind of like old school radio plays in a sense. So I did one last about a year ago, I guess now, um, last season called bro rabbit. That was a sort of reimagining of, um, these, uh, sort of classic, uh, folklores. Um, and now we're working on a bigger kind of collaborative project that, um, yeah, that is still like very, very much in its infancy, but, but I'm hopeful like produce something of interest. Um, so those are like the things artistically that I'm thinking about that I'm, that are kind of, yeah, like, I guess like sparking something for me at this moment. Awesome. Well, it's been really great talking to you again. Yeah, this was, you. yeah, Nate Marshall, who is the author of Finna, who a collection of poetry that is out in like a week or two. And this is Rebecca Buchanan for New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Nate, thanks for being here. Or thank you, Rebecca. Mm-hmm.